It's the year 2020. Drones deliver your Amazon packages. Drone delivery has been a dream for years. Maybe. Elon Musk delivers the Cybertruck. Maybe. Will Japan establish a robotic moon base? Japan has big plans to go to the moon. Will quantum computers make digital security obsolete? Quantum supremacy. Okay, technology predictions are often sketchy. But the dawning of a new decade does feel like a good time to take stock of where we've been, where we are, and to make some educated guesses about where we're going in the world of software development and DevOps. On this special bonus episode of the If Else podcast, we're looking at the past, present, and future of containers, container orchestration, and Kubernetes. And we've got a feature interview with open source technologist Kelsey Hightower. And I'm looking forward to the future of DevOps in the new year of getting minimalized and focusing on impact. Kelsey is a staff developer advocate at Google, and he's a co-chair of KubeCon, the largest Kubernetes conference out there. Stick around for that. I'm Mayuko Inoue, and this is If Else, your guide to smart choices in the field of software development. It's a show that'll help you hone the soft skills and master the hard skills you need to have a sustainable career in tech. It's for everyone from newbies to experienced developers and for team leaders too. And it's brought to you by CTO.ai, the makers of the ops platform. In the past, it was a challenge to keep code consistent across different machines, different environments, and different developers. Back in the late 1970s, Unix developers created a system call and a wrapper program that allowed for environments that contained only certain programs. With that innovation, a seed was planted for what would come to be known as a container. A big step toward the containers we know and love today was the advent of Linux containers in 2008. Wrapping executables with libraries and dependencies into a container solved a host of problems. System-level virtualization allowed people to run several containers using a single Linux kernel. App portability and reliability improved, and the need for full-fledged virtual machines decreased, and so did the cost of infrastructure the container revolution had begun. The rubber really hit the road with the advent of container orchestration. The race began to see who could build the best tools to deploy and manage these containers. Apache entered the fray with Mesos, and Docker launched Swarm. These two tools had a head start in the space, but one platform managed to outpace the rest. Google designed a container orchestration platform called Kubernetes. Kubernetes being a Greek word meaning helmsman or pilot. Version 1.0 was released in July of 2015. And even though it arrived late to the container orchestration party, Kubernetes has become an essential tool in DevOps. Kubernetes is essentially the kernel of a distributed cluster operating system. But unlike the competition, it's open source, and that turned out to be its superpower. The open source nature of Kubernetes made it easy for developers to contribute ideas and features, and there was a strong focus on automating the hard stuff and making the DevOps process easier. 
a vibrant Kubernetes community quickly formed. Even though Kubernetes was created by the for-profit giant Google, it now belongs to the open source community and is managed by Linux's Cloud Native Computing Foundation, or CNCF. When major companies such as Slack and eBay and Shopify and IBM began adopting Kubernetes and building onto it, the platform became an indispensable tool in the DevOps toolbox. That's just a brief history of containers and container orchestration, bringing us to the present DevOps landscape where Kubernetes plays an important role. We're going to dive into some predictions on the future of this space in our feature interview with Kelsey Hightower in a couple of minutes. But right now, I wanna give you a sense of the different ways that developers are using the platform to deploy their software and infrastructure today. We reached out to several members of the DevOps community for their take on the state of container orchestration. My name is Mike, uh, I'm a data engineer. I started working with Kubernetes last year uh, the way I started was like interacting with GKE. I just spun up, it was very straightforward, a few clicks and you have a Kubernetes cluster. But then I wanted to understand it on a deeper level to build the mental models and uh, be able to understand the abstractions. The most challenging part has been like uh, figuring out uh, how to set the firewall rules, how to make sure different components can talk to each other and kind of understanding because networking is a whole another beast. It's challenging and exciting because it's like a totally different way of thinking about infrastructure. That was Mike Husseini, a data engineer who's learning Kubernetes. Vahid Kazimpur is a lead solutions architect at CTO.ai, and he deals with Kubernetes on a daily basis. I'm working with a group of DevOps, so technically in our day-to-day -day job, we are working with the Kubernetes API and installing the Kubernetes cluster on different cloud providers for our customers or internal use, as well as maintaining those clusters. Right now, Kubernetes is at the point that it's getting kind of boring, and it's a good thing, don't get me wrong, like it's a good thing that it's getting boring because uh, it doesn't involve so many incidents or like so many changes and more and more become like a operating system of the cloud. Vahid is clearly happy with the reliability of Kubernetes, though he does have some concerns around security, which we'll hear about later. Carlesia Compost is another technologist who appreciates the power and reliability of Kubernetes. I would like to encourage people to look into Kubernetes because it's such a powerful tool that it's going to be with us for a while. The more applications, the more services you have, the more containers you have, the more it makes sense to go the Kubernetes way. Kubernetes is not super complicated to start up and run, especially if you have some systems admin background. Now, it starts getting complicated when you want to start fine-tuning it for your specific needs. Right off the bat, you might not know how to address issues like security, for example, or specific networking features that you need to fine-tune. Carlesia is a senior member of technical staff at VMware and runs an open-source Kubernetes backup and recovery project there. She recently attended KubeCon, the big Kubernetes conference, and she had a striking realization about the challenges of attracting new talent to the platform. We're going to hear more from her in a bit. 
Now that you've got a sense of the way that developers are using and thinking about container orchestration today, we're going to have a peek at a possible future for this aspect of DevOps. Kelsey Hightower joins me from Portland, Oregon. Kelsey is a staff developer advocate at Google, and he's a co-chair of KubeCon, the largest Kubernetes conference. He's also an enthusiastic open source technology advocate. Here's your 30-second intro. Hey, I'm Kelsey Hightower, principal developer advocate at Google, self-pronounced minimalist, and I'm looking forward to the future of DevOps in the new year of getting minimalized and people focusing on impact. Kelsey, thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Hopefully this will be some uh, new energy, new vibe. Totally. So I want to start off. A lot of people don't understand what Kubernetes really does. So just to start, I just want to ask you, what does it do and who should use it? Yeah, so I think when most people talk about Kubernetes these days, they're thinking about a container management platform. So you write applications, you package them into what are normally called Docker containers, and then Kubernetes is the orchestration system that sits on top of all of the virtual machines. And I'm wondering, actually, Kubernetes has really been a big kind of uh, thing recently in the developer community. And I'm curious, why do you think it's so big right now? And what ingredients went into making this tech so widely adopted? So a couple of things, like all the things we've been building, I would say, over the last 10 or 15 years under this DevOps mantra, right? Infrastructure as code, lots of automation. Then the cloud showed up. And we've developed a lot of patterns over those 10 or 15 years. And what Kubernetes does is kind of give us a checkpoint to say, hey, all of those patterns for running an application, keeping it up and running, and all of the things that we've learned is kind of baked in as this new technology checkpoint. The reason why it resonates so well with developers, we've also been moving into a world of self-service, right? Some people call this DevOps, where we're sharing responsibility. Kubernetes makes it really easy to share that responsibility even among specialists. So you may have a specialist group managing the infrastructure, managing the servers and the cluster, and they can expose this API that really lends itself to self-service, meaning a developer can describe their entire deployment in a descriptive way, submit it to the API, and now both parties can be in field view of what's going on and what the desired state is. It sounds like lots of little iterative things have happened to build up to this point then. Yeah, not just the buildup, but if you think over the last five or six years, you know, there's so many people contributing, individual contributors, startups, big companies like Red Hat, Amazon, and Microsoft, and Google. So I think now that we're starting to see a concentration of effort into this infrastructure project, and I think that's where it's getting its uh, continued momentum from. Got it. Okay, so I do want to get your thoughts on the future of Kubernetes in a bit. But first, give me a sense of some of the big challenges and opportunities facing DevOps engineers in 2020 and beyond. As a DevOps engineer practitioner myself, a former system administrator, I don't think you can ever stop being a system administrator. You've always been trying to automate yourself out of a job, right? We've tried to find these mundane tasks that we repeat over and over again. And we've traditionally, we've written scripts. We've used tools like Configuration Management, Puppet, Chef, and Ansible, and now Kubernetes. But what we're seeing on the other side are serverless platforms that attempt to reduce the amount of infrastructure we have to manage. So what does that mean? If you're currently spinning up servers today, maybe you're a cluster administrator today, you're going to be constantly competing with these new platforms that try to just bake that in into a fully managed offering, right? That doesn't mean you won't have a job. It just means, I think, in the future... Your job is going to be radically different 
than managing a lot of infrastructure. A lot of DevOps engineers today don't manage the internet. They kind of just plug into it. And I think that's going to continue to grow and maybe even succumb some of their infrastructure. It, it sounds like like we all just want to make DevOps really easy and serverless architecture on top of Kubernetes uh, seems like the next building block to get to that point. I really do think so. Like if yeah. you're on-premise and you have a big existing investment, you're running mixed workloads, like you're going to rewrite everything and push it towards serverless. This is where I think Kubernetes is going to have a stronghold in that community and that ecosystem to provide another set of abstractions on top. So we heard from a few developers early in the show about how they're using Kubernetes, um, but we also heard about some of the challenges and concerns they have. So I want to play you a clip from Carlesia Compost from VMware. We are talking about the KubeCon in San Diego in 2019, and it was 12,000 people. The biggest takeaway that I took from it was that I was in a keynote where the speaker asked the newcomers to raise their hands, and it was about 60% of people there. That is very high interest in Kubernetes, and people are looking to learn, and we need to do a better job in onboarding newcomers because the onboarding of Kubernetes right now, there is no straightforward path. People are still struggling. So those are some concerns about the onboarding process. So Kelsey, what's the best way to support newcomers to Kubernetes and who should take the lead on that? I think newcomers themselves deserve a, a place in that onboarding experience. A lot of times people will especially newcomers, will look to the seasoned professionals or those with experience to do all of the teaching, to do all the guidance, to come up with all the best practices that they would then follow. One thing that I pride myself on is learning in public. So all of those newcomers, what we want them to do is join in in teaching. We want their voices on stage. We want them taking their existing domain knowledge. So if you come from a security background, networking background, DevOps background, what you can do is then map that experience on top of Kubernetes. So as you start to uh, kick the tires on Kubernetes for the first time, uh, I think it's really important that you share everything that you learn in that process. So whether that's writing a blog post, giving a talk at a local meetup, and I think that's going to help distribute the load of the onboarding experience. And there's another part of that question I think is there is, Kubernetes is seen as a very hard tool to operate. Right? It may be a little easier to use. So if you're a developer, you can call kubectl apply and deploy your workload. That's great. But what happens on the other side of that where you have to be responsible for building the cluster, upgrading the cluster, and more importantly, securing the cluster? And I think given that it's such a large system, it's going to take time and experience for people to ramp up. Look, Linux is, to me, is equally as complicated. <laughs> it's just a single operating system. And it's been about 20 years in the making for some of us, and we still haven't mastered everything Linux provides or offers. So I think we just got to be a little bit more pragmatic into our approach and just have more people contributing to sharing the load. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I feel like a lot of technologies and tools out there are as good as a community it has based on what blog posts are out there, um, how the community is contributing back to a technology. And so it sounds like Kubernetes is kind of along that same trajectory there too. Yeah, and I think the opportunity for anyone that works on a platform team or a set of system administrators, you can actually do the heavy lifting of managing Kubernetes in a way that no one else in the organization has to be concerned with unless they really want to learn how the platform works. And that's another way of kind of scaling this out. Mm -hmm. 
So kind of like a meta question, especially because I know you've talked a lot about how Kubernetes enables um, a lot of people to do DevOps, and it's supposed to lower the barrier of entry. But given that we're talking about newcomers to Kubernetes, what do you think is like the biggest barrier to entry in learning this technology? Expectations. You know, I think a lot of times people see a new tool, everyone's kind of showing off what they're doing within their infrastructure, and they believe that they can just rub you know, open a jar of Kubernetes and just rub some of it on their current problem set, and then it would just disappear. But I think what people have to understand is that the fundamentals are almost the same as what we were doing before. Mm. If I gave you a bunch of virtual machines, you would treat them like a cluster. Ideally, you'll assign applications to run on them. You put them behind load balancers. You take all of those fundamentals, and Kubernetes just kind of does that in a more automated fashion. So we're not really talking about changing everything that we do. And the first part of your question is, it enables more people to do DevOps. I think what Kubernetes does is, and I like to think of it this way, once you make a decision, right? Some people like to make decisions as a team, even across disciplines, AKA DevOps. Once you make that decision, what Kubernetes allows you to do is capture that decision in a very tangible way, right? So if the team decides we need three copies of this app behind a load balancer in this particular region of the world, well, Kubernetes has a way for you to describe that, write that down in a form that's executable. That's the key of saying, hey, we've made all these decisions. Where do they live? Hmm. And that's trackable and everyone can see them. And it's, 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 it's basically like code, I guess. Yeah, so people say infrastructure is code. I like to think of Kubernetes as infrastructure as data. Mm. So the kind of the challenge with code is that if you have if statements and for loops and all of these things, you almost have to understand the code in detail to understand what's going to happen. And a lot of times, once you start going down the code route, you have to pick some programming language or create a new one. That makes it very hard to interchange the tools. This is why Kubernetes really leans into this idea that everything needs to be a declarative config. We keep the code out of the configuration. That allows you to maybe use a tool that does infrastructure as code, such as Helm or Terraform. Those can generate Kubernetes configurations. The reason why we want this data is because now we can set up data pipelines. Mm -hmm. So if you're in DevOps and you're using these automation tools to formalize these decisions, given that now we have a very clean data model, now your security team can understand that configuration with their own tools and apply other policies without forcing everyone to use the same tool. Mm -hmm. It certainly feels safer that way. Safer, easier to understand, and I think when you have things that have very clear intent, a bit easier to understand, then you can actually bolt on the safety piece without necessarily reinventing the wheel. Yeah, totally. So actually, speaking of safety and security, one of the lead solution architects at CTO.ai also attended KubeCon, and he was particularly interested in a couple of topics. Um, so have a listen to Vahid Kazimpour. There were two major topics that I found really interesting. One of them, of course, was security and how you secure your workload. The other one was other abstraction coming on top of the Kubernetes. Like serverless was big. And there are so many people who are talking about the serverless and service technology like Knative and OpenFast. So, Kelsey, two points from Vahid here. First, let's talk about the challenges of security in Kubernetes, uh, because it's not, as some people assume, secure right out of the box, and you have to do a fair bit to secure your workload. Is that right? On the security front, I think now that we have this very powerful system, right, that can control a much broader set of infrastructure, from your load balancer to your configuration passwords and secrets and all of these things, and now we start to think about what we call that blast radius. 
that Kubernetes API, if compromised, can you know basically give people access to almost every machine in that cluster. So now there's a bigger focus on that. And there's a couple of parts there. There's Kubernetes, the software itself, right? And then there's also the things that we deploy into Kubernetes. You know, there's kind of this bad habit in the industry where people just find applications on the internet and just run them in their cluster, and they're not sure what they're doing. And honestly, as professionals, we, we kind of own the responsibility to understand what we're downloading and deploying into our clusters. And that's the thing that's making a lot of people super nervous here. Now, this isn't new with Kubernetes because we've had the same challenge with libraries, right? If you're writing a Node.js application and you import one library and it imports the rest of the world, you have no idea what's going on in your, in your application. So this is just a discipline that we can't forget about it just because it's easy to use. On the second part of your question, I've always you know, had this phrase, Kubernetes is a platform for building platforms. So once you have this base layer, which is kind of the prerequisite if you want to have a great, clean, serverless environment, I can start to layer on some of those missing pieces, right? So if I have a dev team who doesn't really care about containers, really are not interested in learning all of Kubernetes, in their case, I can just come up with a high-level abstraction to say, look, if you just give me four lines of config, I can deploy the app that you're trying to build. And, and now we're moving towards the serverless world, meaning we're trying to make the servers disappear to the point where people feel like they're working with a whole different platform. Yeah. And kind of this move to serverless, um, especially in the new decade, how do you think these trends are going to play out over the next couple of years? Do you see them widely adopted? Do you, can you foresee the next step after serverless? I think we're just going to find ourselves in very hyper-optimized platforms for the use case. Like your mobile device is a hyper-optimized platform. So is my streaming box on the behind of my TV, right? It's not a general computer. I can't install additional things on it outside of what it was built for. And I think what we're going to see on the platform side, if you look at Cloudflare, they have a new serverless platform called Workers. And the goal there is to start to run some of your workloads on the edge closer to the customer. And I think what we're going to start to see is not one but thousands of these things over time, different flavors, uh, hiding some of these details. So if you just want to deploy an app, I think you're just going to have so many more choices to get that deployed. Sometimes it's going to be based on functions and events. Sometimes it's going to be your standard, typical apps that you're building today, just fully managed. And I think we're just going to see more of those arise now that people have been decoupled from the machine. So Kubernetes' biggest job, I think the thing we'll remember the most about Kubernetes it was one of the first tools that didn't take a machine-centric approach to infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Configuration management, you would have an inventory file, and you would link all of your applications to identities. And in Kubernetes, we tend not to do that. We tend to say, hey, here's a cluster. Tell me how much CPU and memory you want, and I'll do the heavy lifting of matchmaking where those applications run. Other than serverless, are there some other trends that you see playing out or some roadblocks that you anticipate? I think now we're starting to get all this data being derived from these systems. So whether it's serverless or Kubernetes, you're producing so much metrics and logs. You're seeing so much traffic coming from your customer base. And a lot of the security tools and infrastructure tools are starting to incorporate things like ML. So like, if you think about it, now it's a fancy way of taking all of that data, building a model, and predicting what should happen next. So if I apply ML to my security, I can decide if I see enough bad things happen across the world, then I can have a dynamic firewall that adjusts to the world by predicting what's going to happen. Same thing for failures, right? Today, we kind of wait till things go down, we get a page in the middle of the night, and then we try to resolve it. 
Now, if we start to bake in some of these principles into things like Kubernetes or serverless platforms, they'll automate the scaling to accommodate for more traffic based on historical patterns and using smarter models. And we're already seeing that stuff start to roll out uh, into some of these systems. So I think the future is bright for taking some of these ML techniques and rolling it into our infrastructure to model the behavior of the world's very best system administrators. Yeah, that would be really cool. It's, it's Like you said, it's moving to a world that's more and more automated. And intelligent, right? So the automation piece combined with some intelligence, because I think I come from a background where we brute force automated everything, right? You get this perfect, pristine view of the world in your head, and you write a bunch of scripts to try to make it come true. But the problem with that is those scripts usually don't react to things that you didn't plan for. So the automation just drops on the floor. So what we need is something a little bit more intelligent to say, you know what, there are things that may happen and we need to be able to accommodate for that on the fly and then maybe even adjust the program on the fly to account for this new information. Is there anything else today that you wanted to touch on that I didn't ask you about on the future of DevOps and Kubernetes? Well, you did a great job. Like that was like pretty dope and pretty (laughs) fast and great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your insight and your predictions. Thanks. Happy to be here. Kelsey Hightower is a staff developer advocate at Google. He's also the co-chair of KubeCon, the largest Kubernetes conference. You can find links to some of his keynote speeches and other talks in the show notes and at cto.ai slash podcast. Wherever you are in your tech career, CTO.ai thinks a lot about how to make work in software development and DevOps more efficient and effective. Visit CTO.ai to download the Ops platform. The Ops platform makes it easy for development teams to create and share workflow automations without leaving the command line. Keep your eyes peeled for the Kubernetes op. You'll be able to spin up a functioning Kubernetes cluster on top of AWS in a matter of minutes. Kubernetes is a huge subject and a growing part of DevOps. According to a 2019 survey by the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, 40% of the companies surveyed were using Kubernetes in production. And that number is expected to grow as more companies realize that this technology is here to stay. And it's bound to grow even stronger as the Kubernetes open source community brings lots of new solutions to the table this year and beyond. And as you heard from the interview, there's a growing trend towards serverless architecture where applications are divided into functions that are hosted by a third party. Kubernetes seems to be going in the direction of a hybrid orchestration that includes serverless architecture. There's an open source project called Virtual Kubelet that you can use to create a virtual node for serverless infrastructure. Pretty cool. You're also likely to see more and more focus on container security this year and beyond with new encryption services and persistent storage. If you've run into challenges with a tool like Kubernetes or solved a big problem as a DevOps hero for your company, let us know. Drop us a line and tell us what you predict for the future of DevOps. Connect on our social channels at cto.ai slash podcast. That's it for this season of If Else. If you're new to the series, 
have a listen to past episodes on everything from remote versus on-site work, React versus Vue, or a computer science degree versus a coding bootcamp. You can find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. I'm Mayuko Inoue. Thanks for listening. Apache entered the fray with Mezos and Donker Tonker. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> uh, okay.